Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon looking out across Perth Stadium, which this week became Australia's 10th test venue. Australia won the match by 146 runs early on the fifth day, knocking over India in their second innings for 140, falling a long way short of their victory target of 287. And Jeff, I think the best news for cricket fans around the world is that we have a live Boxing Day test against the... A renewed Australian side, I say, with, uh, with, with some trepidation versus the world's top-ranked test team who are a chance of losing a series down here, a series that they would have thought after Adelaide they're they in the box seat to win. And we have a live episode of the podcast. We've got to cover off the test match. We've got a bunch of other talking points we want to get to, and we've got some guests later in the show, the guys from Crickviz, Freddie Wilde and Ben Jones, who are the, the deep-dive number crunchers, and we've had a good chat to them too. But, yeah, what a, what a, I, I loved this test match. What, it, was, it was a brilliant week. We, we're looking out over the ground. It's day five as we're recording this and the, the late sun on, on the grass and the, the shadows from the grandstand, but it just sort of serves to remind what you know what a terrific contest we have and uh, had and what a great surface was dished up for it. Yeah, let, let's start with the surface. It, it was uh, much talked about before the test match. It was always going to be, whether or not it had grass on it or otherwise, the fact that it's a, a new test venue, a drop-in pitch, the, the connotations of drop-in pitches, I suppose, due to what we've seen in Melbourne over the last handful of years are that they're slow and low and boring and so on. This was anything but that. It perhaps wasn't as affected by the grass that we saw before the test as much as it was the cracking underneath the surface. I heard, I think, Jared Waitley describe it as a comb-over uh, situation on day one. <laughs> it wasn't so much the, the grass as, the, as what was underneath. It was so the, a bit was of a the, Vahari job. Yes, a Vahari job, precisely. That was a real talking point on day one too, wasn't it? Vahari's lid and, and, and the big bald spot in the middle. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try and we'll, we'll leave that territory for our friends at the Great Cricketer. I'm sure they'll get well involved in that when they do their post-test match podcast. Um, but no, the, the, the surface, uh, a big tick uh, for, for, from everyone that's covered this match because it changed as the test match went on. And, and indeed, it changed from session to session. You, that's what we want. We want surfaces which keep you thinking. A big tick is great unless you're a dog um, and then it's not. <laughs> but, you, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't argue with it. It was interesting. We had a chat to Mike McKenna who runs the stadium and heard a fair bit about how they put this pitch together, growing it in the middle of Gloucester Park and, yeah. and having people come out and simulate a test match on it. Sort of do the, the I love that, using Hawkeye and everything. Like it took them, they said they, they would bowl an entire test match worth of balls uh, and they did that over a couple of years. Like yeah, they three were, or four years. They were really determined not 
let this turn into a shit heap, basically, yeah. because we we, Which we saw what so often can they, they can be, and it was the they they built on the technology from Adelaide to get what they've got here. And um, Daniel Bredig has a story today about how Melbourne is is uh, is going to adopt the technology from Perth with their dropping wickets from next year as well. So it's it's a good thing that we've got competition between these these uh, these grounds that don't have the natural surface anymore. And what we had, you know, what it what it gave us was this contest between the two pace attacks um, and and those of the batsmen who were able to withstand them. Both teams, I thought, bowled beautifully at times. Yeah, Mohamed Shami's spell, uh, the, the six for that he took in the third innings, that's one of the most exciting spells I've seen. Uh, the way the Australian quicks bowled in that last innings just to make sure India never had a chance really, just got on top of them right from the start. Um, but, but mostly that duel between Kohli and Rahane with the bat um, and then the Australian bowling attack. It's Pat Cummins particularly where... God, it was just a bloody-minded brawl. They dragged it out for a long time. Australia bowled so well. Coley and Rahane refused to get out. Batted through that couple of sessions uh, yeah. together on the what was it? It was the second day. night. Yeah, that, that that second day on session two and session three is as good a Test cricket as you'll see. It was uh, it was it was a real brawl. Uh, Cummins and Lyon bowling sixteen overs for twenty-two runs before T After Coley went nuts at the start and hit four boundaries in his first ten balls. Like it was, I, I sat in the crowd for that and took photos for the bowl of that, uh, I think it was that middle session and the way the Indian fans came to life, there weren't huge attendances and, and we'll come to that in a moment, but it felt like a bigger crowd than it was because Kohli was flying yep. uh, India was scrapping hard and we were seeing some pristine cricket But he was he was flying with control and yeah. I, I, I loved this innings, it was one of, the, one of the best I've seen from him because yeah, he did get off with a flurry at the start, but it wasn't like he was coming out looking to attack. Hazelwood was pitching up looking for swing, looking for movement, and Coley was just on driving them for four because the balls were overpitched and there to mm. hit. As soon as they weren't, he dropped right back, was happy to bat out maidens, took singles, um, and did that. I think he went for about 65 deliveries before he hit his next boundary. Mm. Um, Pat Cummins kept beating him, beating the outside edge at times, and, and Coley just waited and waited and waited, and then eventually, as soon as he had a ball that was there, to hit crack it went for four there was no switching off it was one of the most remarkable displays of concentration i've seen yeah which made it all the more admirable the way that australia fought back on on the third morning so a bit of a trope with the australian side over the last couple of years or a pattern has been that you give them a big session on on morning three or morning four and they capitulate Mm -hmm. and it's been the case since perth in 2016 where they lost those two sessions and take a wicket in either of them and i can think of half a dozen examples which i won't bore you with now but the point it happened in adelaide last week that that big first session on on day four they they couldn't break up Pajara and Rahane's partnership until about 100 minutes in. So I, in a way, was expecting something similar on morning three. I came here thinking that, well, you know, if Coley and Rahane bat for a couple of hours, suddenly uh, they'll they'll almost certainly move towards a first innings lead. But yeah. the opposite was true. Lyon, a wicket in his first over. Um, Coley was dismissed at the end of the session, but a couple of wickets in between times to give them a, a relatively healthy first innings lead. Of, I think it was 43 or 44. Yeah, 45 or so. But, 45. But, but the difference between ending there or ending 50 in front, you know, if it had India ended 50 in front, you know, suddenly... Totally different game different of cricket, game. completely. And it was it reminded me of the old-fashioned Australian model of make enough runs in the first innings after batting first. And let's not diminish that decision from Tim Payne. Like, two things there. One, playing a spinner, which, of course, Australia always were going to with Nathan Lyon, but India didn't. India went with four quicks. They were um, coerced into that after seeing the track. I think Ashwin's injury helped confirm their suspicion there that they that they didn't necessarily fancy playing a spinner, yeah, which was he, a misstep. If he'd been fit, they would have played him. It felt that way, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. But also the fact that, uh, you know, Coley says he would have batted first as well, but it was a genuine 50-50 call and Payne made the gutsy call, which was batting on what looked to be a green top. And the reward for that is getting to bowl in the fourth innings when the pitch is falling apart. And it never fell apart here, but it certainly did deteriorate. And with India's long tail, batting last was always going to be a big uphill battle. So I think admirable from Payne to to do what the easy thing would have been to have gone, oh, look, I've got a fantastic bowling attack. Let's pop them in and, and have a crack. The harder thing is to um, to back in a batting lineup, which is lacking in experience and for the, for the most part lacking for runs. I sort of look at it the other way, though, because any time you elect to bowl, people jump on you. And it's funny how there's that split where if you yeah. elect to bat and lose the test, no one says, what an idiot, they lost because he batted first. But if you elect to bowl and lose the test, what an idiot. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. And it was 39 degrees as well. I'm not saying that bowling was the right call, but more the fact that it was oh, – yeah, I'll, I'll rephrase it. It was a traditional good toss to lose, and Payne said as much before the game. He, he would have been very happy for the decision to have been taken out of his hands. So mm. I, mean, I like that. I like that it was the old-fashioned, when Australia were at the peak of their powers, their business model was, you know, win the toss bat, 
in any circumstance and back Warner McGrath to, to bowl them out. And, and they've yep. got a similar um, quality of bowler in, well, not, I'm not saying that it's Warner McGrath, but you put together Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins and Lyon and it's formidable. And, and being able to bowl on a pitch like that on the final day, they were always, they were destined to, to run through them for the lowest score of the series so yeah. far. Contrasting that with the sort of um, pretty patched together kind of batting lineup. That they have, you know, versus the the all star bowling lineup. It's yeah, it's like having an old Datsun pulling up, towing a Ferrari behind it. <laughs> um, but but that weakness in the batting was what made things so intriguing on that um, that third evening and, and into the fourth day because. You know, Australia starting their second innings. Yeah, they're forty odd in front, but they they could still fall apart. And then the wickets start to go down, and the frailties start to be shown. Um, and, and it was like every every player was sort of doing his his greatest hits version of his dismissal. You know, Sean Marsh loose outside off stump. Peter Hanscom on the back leg. <laughs> uh, Travis Head slashes to third man for the second time in the match. Yeah, and you, you're like, what are you doing? Your best of 2018 dismissals. <laughs> like, what, what's going on here? Um, and then Aaron Finch looked like he'd broken his finger at that point. So effectively, they were four down. Yeah. For, for not that many, they're only five down. Tim Payne was in. in front. That's right. Yeah, Harris lost his off stump, letting Boomer That's go. right. Yeah, which which she had every right to do on on the um, on the data. We've got the Crickvids guys in later, but their their data showed that every other ball pitched anywhere remotely near that would have missed the stumps, and that one just cut in enough to to nick the top of off. But so they were all gone in that evening session, and it was in that dim sort of light, and the Indian paces were flying in. And then there's the second session on the fourth day where Shami smashes through Australia. But in between, there's this session where Payne and Kawaja just grounded out. They only put on 58 for the session, but that was enough to take Australia from a, a lead that may not have been enough to something that looked imposing. Yeah, it was the third slowest 50 partnership Australia have made this century. Andrew Sampson worked out <laughs> on SEN. And you're right, at 58 runs, they put on 72 all told, but it was blunting the momentum. We don't like that word, but we'll say it anyway. On the third evening, um, there was a couple of things going on. One is that wickets were falling. Um, starting with the Harris dismissal, just to quickly segue into that, it reminded me of Keaton Jennings when he picked up, uh, when he picked up, or sorry, rather, when Keaton Jennings was picked up by Boomer in Southampton, letting the ball go. Boomer makes you, he, he, he convinces left handers to make bad decisions, and mm. that was one of them. But as you say, the data bolstered the case for him <laughs> letting the ball go. So I'm just, just imagining him at the bar with a bunch of left handers going, You guys want to get tequila shots? <laughs> Let's get tequila shots. <laughs> yeah, you end up at five in the morning, uh, you know, uh, with a big should, bag of twisties. Should have let that one go. Go. Should let the one go through the keeper. He's a class bowler. Another stat that and I'm not sure that this is a quick stat. I'm pretty sure is that Boomer across the second innings he uh, he generated 33 plays and misses, which is the most ever in Australia on their database. So. It's fair to say he's one of well. the unluckiest bowlers going around. So his figures are yet to really show how well he's going in this series. Again, it was much the case in England too. But well, what well, I was planning on saying... The pitch lent itself to that. 187 play and misses in the match. Fourth most wow. ever on record. Oh, gee, that's a good one. Hmm. Well, uh, I was going to say I'd pinch that, but it's probably too late to write about it. Yep. So uh, I'm glad we got it out here. But what, what I found interesting about the fourth morning, as well as Kawaja... Um, I wrote last night and said it just showed he's got this wonderful range. Three years ago, it was when Kawaja was the quintessential stylist. He was crashing um, century after century in all three forms of the game, domestically, internationally, and so on. Mm. They were usually at a wonderful clip. He was crunching. I'll never forget the sound of that boundary at, when we were at Wellington. The test match where he made 100 out of 140 of his runs were, were boundaries, the bulk of those to the cover boundary. Pretty much all, yeah, about 17 out of 20 it, or something. It, it was incredible the way that he batted that day, but showing that he's got this range. He can pull back completely, and, and that to me is him demonstrating that, that he wants to be a leader in this side. He's evaluated that without Smith and Warner, the role he needs to play had to mature somewhat, and I, I said last night he's got the range of David Bowie, not Green Day, when it's, in terms of the way this guy can bat. He has so many different um, clubs that he can pull out at different times, if you want to mix your metaphors there. Uh, it, 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 this is what Just he... imagining David Bowie David playing Bowie golf now. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, 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 Mad golfer. Little known fact. <laughs> Pick Greg Norman fan. <laughs> Love the shark. Yeah, I don't play, know why. Play with Donald Trump yeah. as well, yeah. Oh. Um, but no, the, the, uh, the very fact that he had that discipline, alongside Tim Payne, who was playing a completely different role out there. So Tim Payne's role was to almost take Coley. So Coley on night three, he'd been dismissed, uh, caught in the cordon halfway through that day, and he was furious about it. It informed the way he came out in the field, hyper-aggressive, wouldn't shut up. Coley being in the 11 out of 10 version of himself on his worst day, but Payne, as he said at the, at the post-match press conference, realised with, with an inexperienced side, 
that does take a toll uh, for, for, for the young Australian batsmen and for mm. inexperienced players. And he knew he needed to stand up and play that role as almost the defence mechanism to um, make Coley's influence less on the fourth day. And it worked a treat. So before long, we weren't really just talking about Coley. We were talking about the contest between Coley and Payne. And it seemed to have an effect on the way the Australian side came out after that. They weren't able to clean off the tail with Hazelwood and Stark putting on the really important 38 for the final wicket, I think it was. And... It just felt at that point there that, you know, it's hard. It's hard to identify a certain point in the game, but that, that first session had far broader implications than simply the 58 runs they made. It had, to me anyway, it says a lot about the way that Payne sees himself as leading this side and the way that he's willing to take the fight to Coley and, as he, using his words, not be walked all over. 11 out of 10 is, is quite a, an amusing description, actually. He said, yeah, if Coley's going into the nightclub at Crown Casino, he's shirt off straight on the podium, you know, <laughs> get, get yeah, down onto the blackjack tables at 4.30 a.m. What was, what was that? It was called Heat, wasn't it? No, what, was, what was the joint? Was it, was it Odeon at the time? Uh, Odeon was one. Yeah. There was one across the road. You had to be, you had to be um, Odeon was where you could get into if you looked yep. like you or I. And there was the one across the road that Molly Meldrum used to DJ on a Sunday night. There was one called Blue something. They used, yeah. to, used to have um, cop cars out the front just basically all. <laughs> night every night with Just the lights drug on. bust after drug yeah. bust and or, or various kinds of brawls and things going on <laughs> um it, it, it seemed to me like yeah people sort of clicked on to the facts like oh actually we we liked him pain um because because he was you know he was yeah he was getting amongst it verbally but also he's he just battles away like a, he's like an old style wicket keeper where he's probably never going to add to that tally of first class hundreds that stands at one from 2006 mm. but he's he'll make that 37 that he made here or the 42 or the 65 or whatever it is and just sort of guts it out and 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 bat with the tail and take a score from a mediocre one to a strong one yeah it's that balls per dismissal stat which i haven't got in front of me at the moment but i know at one point in south africa since his comeback it was 100 balls Every time he went out, and, mm. and again, that that that's the antidote to the collapse problem Australia have had since probably 2014. They've collapsed a yep. disproportionate amount of time. Steve Smith was never able to remedy it as captain, but Payne plays a role in doing so because he's in the part of the order which tended to fall away. The middle lower order was where you could often see five or six wickets fall yep. in quick time, and and he's right in the guts of that, trying to you know, prevent that from taking place. So yeah, the, the partnership between Kawaja and Payne crucial. And, um, and if they were the blockage, you know, Muhammad Shami was the laxative. Because yes. he came through after the lunch break, and the ball he went got, through them. The ball he got pain with, my God, just absolutely leapt off off the crack. I think. Same with um, Kawaja, both unplayable. Smashed him in the gloves, but yep. but the pain one was sort of in front of your face, fended away to the cordon, and the Kawaja one was a fuller length, and then just spat up at him. He wasn't sort of trying to evade it, but it took the glove anyway. Aaron Finch comes in very next ball, resuming from being re- from retired hurt, gets a ball at his ribs, tries to glance it, but again too much bounce, and he gloves it down the leg side. So for a fast bowler to get three off. The the glove within a couple of overs. You know, it's outstanding quick bowling. And Mitchell Stark, when he got his opportunity, so they set India 287. All the criticism of Mitchell Stark, oh, you know, I have to say, I went back through it when I was writing a piece about him on what would have been probably night three. It was, it was a lot of attention on what, what really amounted to two overs with the second new ball last Sunday. Not saying he bowled the house down at any stage during the test match, but the bit where he was, to use Shane Warne's quote, atrocious, which um, it's, it's his way of thinking he should have had his place under question in the Australian side. Um, it extends to, you know, a couple of overs. Now, I mean, you know, if, if you can't be forgiving of that for your attack leader, I, I get scrutiny. And I'm, I'm not saying that Warren shouldn't say what he thinks, by the way, nor should anyone. This should be, you're perfectly entitled as a commentator or a critic to, to, to do and say what you think. It, but it might I not, did feel it like might it was not hurt if there was a bit more time between the two, <laughs> between the thinking and the saying. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> perhaps so. But, but, but even so, uh, building all that in, uh, seeing the way the Lisa Healy uh, responded on social media where she screen capped a graphic which showed that Stark has the best strike rate ever for an Australian bowler with more than 100 wickets, which, you know, was fairly pointed. Yep. Um, the way that Stark said... I love her work on social media. She's very she's good. She's so good. She's very good. She's very cutting. She was excellent during the pay dispute last year as well. Um, but, but I mean, Stark said he didn't say much of it, which I thought was quite a quite a good move as well. I, I didn't read a word Warren said. Obviously, he would have been very familiar with what Shane said, but I like the fact that he said that he didn't. It was almost like just like, you know, to, again, it's, it's that uh, one-upmanship of sorts to say, well, you might have bagged me, but I don't care. It's the anti-Steve Smith. I read everything. Yeah, I stay up right. till 3am reading articles about myself because yeah, with because I want to know everything. That's right. I want to know. I'm not saying that Smith has a Google alert, but um, it used to be a legend. Michael Clark did. Uh, so the, the, the ball that Stark bowled to 
KL Rahul, I think it was. It might have been Murali VJ. I might be no, getting my two innings mixed up here. Yep. The, either way, he got both out during the test match with balls that went through them early. Uh, on both occasions, near enough to 150 clicks, coming back off the scene, that quintessential stark full ball that we were so accustomed to during the 2015 World Cup, and even the 2015 Ashes for that matter. Mm. Um, he bowled some fearsome spells well, It was there. a clean bowl in the first innings and then off the face of the bat. In the That's right, the trying on. to leave. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it was, you, again, you, you make – the way I look at it with Stark is that – you can get away with him being volatile because Hazelwood, Cummins and Lyon are so accurate. Mm. They're so relentless. They, they land the ball in the shoebox. All three of them play that role so nicely that Stark's a mixed bag. You, you don't know always what you're getting with Stark, and I think that's actually a good thing. You, of course, you need to have in there plenty of wicket-taking deliveries, but I don't mind so much when he's all over the shop because, you know, it, it, it does... Uh, create it does mean the batsman has to second guess he's not always going to know you've got the guys dotting it up at the other end he's a bit like Stuart McGill in that respect the guy with the mm. you know the unplayable delivery in his kit bag he'd roll it out once every second or third over but then he would bowl four half trackers he still took in excess of 250 wickets or whatever it was for Australia at a miserly average because the wicket taking deliveries made it all worth it I, I sort of see Stark in a similar frame so yes he did bowl that uh, that ropey spell in Adelaide But as we've seen in Perth It's what he does here Which is far more important than the, I, I'd wait far more on that Than I would the bad days Well the way he set it up In that fourth innings Because you know When, you, when you've got to chase A challenging total in the fourth So much relies on that Opening partnership You, you lose yeah. a couple early Then basically it's It feels like it's all over Even if it's not um, A few interesting Little bits and pieces That came out of the week This week Justin Langer Swapping change rooms Because he wanted The West Coast Eagles rooms It was one of many things <laughs> Broken by our dear friend Andrew in the Tonk in the Sydney Morning Herald. He's had a blinder we, uh, with that column. I strongly urge you to read it about. It's about five o'clock each afternoon. What he does is he trawls the press box looking for little nuggets of information and, and some of those he picks up are absolute beauts. He got stuck into Sachin Tendulkar of a, of a fairly questionable tweet um, uh, during the week as well, which is worth a read. So, But yes, that came out of that, that Justin Langer, who of course is a director of the West, West Coast Eagles, he yep. wanted them to, um, to uh, soak up the energy of, of the AFL Premiers in 2018 and use their room. So what happened was... Just Get the vibe. Yeah, the Just vibe. Just get that Josh Kennedy vibe. Well, they had the flag set up. I think it was for the mm. national anthems when they were coming. They, but they, the flags were at the wrong rooms because no one had told the um, no one had told the, the cer- ceremonial officials that they decided to make that switcheroo. So um, that was a, a nice bit of gold there from him. Also, like that they have uh, the Justin Langer stand named after him. A big sign up there. How many coaches have coached in a ground where they have a stand named after themselves? That's a good point. I, mean, I know Jimmy Anderson often bowls from the Jimmy Anderson end at Old Trafford after they renamed it there a couple of years ago, yeah. but. Yes, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure, Jimmy. Uh, but yes, um, it, look, there was there was tons of bits of colour through the course of the week. I reckon, and I meant to raise this with you last week, Jeff, and I, I think it's worthy of greater interrogation mm-hmm. uh, when we get an opportunity to talk about it in depth. But I've never seen a test match or a pair of test matches with more betting advertising around the ground. I'm not sure whether that's – maybe that's in my head. Maybe I'm just seeing it that way because I want to see it that way. But there are, I'm not going to mention the company who they're promoting, but there is so much advertising mm. around the ground, ranging from um, the, 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 the spongy thing on the boundary, whatever we call that, um, on the – The Toblerones. The Toblerones, which indeed is an advertising logo of itself, really, when you think well, about we're, it. We're Toblerone happy to, really happy to give should, Toblerone a run on the podcast. Toblerone really should sponsor the Toblerone, shouldn't they? That would I, make a lot of sense. I don't think Toblerone are necessarily creating addictions that destroy people's lives and cost societies millions and millions of dollars in damages. Yeah, and look, I understand that the counter argument... Unless you really go hard on the- Yeah, and by advertising, I mean around the ground on the on the boards. So yeah, we can see the that some of them are fixed. boundary boards. Yeah, some of them are fixed. Some of them are illuminated and changed ball to ball over to over. But I took a photo of Tim Payne yesterday when all you could see behind him was, was, was betting ads, which struck me yep. as quite a stark thing. And I know that the counter-argument from Cricket Australia, because they had a similar debate last year when they when they appointed a new alcohol sponsor, a new beer sponsor, it's that where do you stop? Do you, do you stop Toyota being able to sponsor them because um, Toyota create uh, uh, carbon emissions and therefore are damaging the planet? And, and, they, and, of course, that was exactly the same argument that was used back when tobacco was the principal yeah. sponsor of cricket as well. Where do you find the additional revenue? So I get the other side of the equation, but it feels as though when you're dealing with quote-unquote sin taxes, so yep. um, uh, you know companies that do um, profit from gambling addiction or nicotine addiction or alcohol addiction, that there is a conversation worth having. And again, I, I might be imagining this. It may, may, may very well be that, that gambling has been equally prominent in, in previous seasons, but it, but it struck me this way. I, I mean, I've certainly seen it a lot in South Africa. I remember there being a lot of 
gambling boards and, and quite a few of the countries that we've toured to, but it's it's immense here. It, it's not um, unprecedented. There's been a lot for quite a few years, but it does seem to be a bit more than usual. And also all of the, um, the, the sort of Cricket Australia website stuff, everything they're putting up online it has seems to have pre-roll, you know, gambling ad pre-rolls on, on the online videos. You watch a dismissal yeah. or something on Twitter and it flashes up a betting company. I'm not, um, sure, whether that's, I'm not sure whether that's all of the ca.com.au content, but certainly... Good, I, good chunk I, of it. I, I've noticed one per day is sponsored directly mm. by a betting company and also um, they have banner ads all over the website. I took a screen grab the other day of where they... I'm not, I think they call it a... A takeover, don't they? When, when the whole website yeah, looks or a, like... or a wrap. A wrap, yeah. The wrap was of the same company again. Yep. So they've obviously tipped in a lot of money into cricket, and we know the benefits of money being invested into cricket. Sure, but and that's fine. It's the flip side. It's always one of those things where it's, it's lazy. It, it's not actually that hard to find sponsors who want to get involved and there are there are lots and lots of companies that want to get involved with with you know premium products as, as they look at at sort of elite sports so it's really a matter of ease and the volume of cash because you know a company like a, a betting company knows that that the easiest thing it can do and and its most sort of lucrative return on advertising investment is to get involved with sport and they can throw more money than, than other companies might. But it's still incredibly lazy just to say, well, we'll just grab all of that money and not worry about trying to get it from elsewhere. It's, as you say, it's exactly the same as when you know, cigarette advertising was banned. Every, you know, The Victorian Racing Club, I remember going on and on about how they'd absolutely be ruined. The Melbourne Cup seems to still be running pretty well. Uh, and they seem <laughs> yeah, to have, they're okay. there's no shortage of sponsors lining up for that. And where do you stop arguments are just an excuse for inaction, almost almost routinely if you say well if we do this where do we stop it's just it's just a cop out in order to avoid having to do anything at all so don't worry about where you stop why don't you just start yeah well there's a group that work at the uh curtin university i interviewed them last year when when the beer sponsorship shifted and i haven't got the numbers in front of me now but but it's an alarming amount of uh look it, it's hard i don't want to um i don't want to um, be, get, be a I don't wowzer, want to go too deep because here. we're not i mean we, no, we I, obviously... I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm yeah i don't want to sound as though i'm i'm um i am uh, i'm i'm talking about you know uh, uh, prohibition or anything well, between like that. the two of us we um pretty richly and deeply enjoy all of the various sins that we've just discussed yeah. in the last 10 minutes so it's it's not as though we're we're people who want to see it you know scrubbed off the face of the earth no but it's just that idea that there is uh, there is a conversation to be had about it and uh, and, I, and i'm and in a way i'm glad i noticed it and i'm glad it's something we can we can talk about because i, I feel as though it's the sort of thing that after a while you just become conditioned to i think it's just a weird collision where everything you see from cricket australia in terms of good news stories and in terms of promotion it's all about kids it's all about we want kids to love the game how do we get kids to like cricket we need the big bash so kids will watch it with their families blah 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 and and then move on from that kids will get interested in test cricket because they follow the big bash or whatever it is it's all about attracting children to the game if you are so focused on that and you're so focused on going out to schools and getting kids playing and getting Mm. girls playing cricket as well to swell those participation numbers and all the rest of it if you have that much focus on on children as your audience and then your primary sponsors are all gambling and booze Something's wrong. It, it is wrong, and 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 something should be done about it. Uh, one more thing I want to touch on before we uh, introduce our, our guests for this episode of the final week: the the Perth attendances. Uh, look, this is always a fraught debate because there, there are lots of arguments why people come to the cricket and don't come to the cricket, and mm-hmm. and, and and trying to uh, you know, uh, it, there's this correlation and causation aren't the same thing. So, sure. and, say, saying the Australian team. Uh, Misbehaving in Cape Town means that crowds aren't rocking up this summer. That's not right. But you can't say that. I mean, that, well, I say that's not right. You can't say that's exclusively the reason. But by, the, by contrast, you can't say it's not part of the conversation either. And Christina Matthews, the the boss of the Wacker, made that point on SEN Radio during the Test match. She said that um, the, the culture of views and the way Cricket Australia has been seen in the Australian team over the last nine months has led towards those fairly anemic crowds here. They expected better. And we spoke to Mike McKenna, as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, uh, before the test, and he said to us quite explicitly that there'd be more people here each day of the test and more people that would attend overall than the Ashes test last year. And looking at the first three days, which of course was the, the Friday and the two weekend days, so the two best days to ju- the three best days rather, to judge it on, uh, there were about 1,500 uh, more here, more there at the Wacker last year on day one. That swells to about 3,000 on day two. And on day three, it was about 1,000, 1,100 again. Yeah. So the crowds were bigger at the Wacker last year. That's irrefutably mm. the case. And So they had sort of 80,000 for the test. Which is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. Again, we know that historically crowds weren't 
weren't huge at Test cricket, but they did swell uh, in the last sort of fifteen twenty years or so. And and, and we I shouldn't think when you when you've got a sort of purpose built brand new you know sparkling shiny stadium which is entirely designed for for people's comfort. Like there was a lot of talk about shaded areas, but a lot of the ground is shaded. You can you can fine. find shaded areas. Oh yeah, no drama. There's no there. issue with that. We thought it would be, but in the end there was plenty of room, so it, it didn't really matter. It did wouldn't have wanted to have had forty thousand here though. It would have been a lot of people in the sun. Yeah, but it did seem. I mean, it seemed disappointing, even though the numbers are good versus historical numbers. It seemed disappointing given the venue that more people didn't turn out. Yeah. So my question there becomes: What happens? So people will say it wasn't an Ashes Test match. What What can you expect? India don't turn up to Test cricket. Is also a theory I've seen advanced on Twitter. But again, I spent a lot of time in the crowd this week. Any time I wasn't riding, I was pretty much sitting in the crowd, thinking and taking photos and making beer snakes. Making beer snakes, precisely. Yeah. Getting on the gas um, on the sponsor's just, products. Just on his own. It's really hard and to having get a, a good on my phone at snake. the same time. Getting a good beer snake going on your own is a, it's a lonely process. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, what I noticed was, and Peter Lawler made this observation from the Australian newspaper in his copy one of the two days as well. There are more Indian fans here than Australian fans. Mm. So don't point the finger at Indians not rocking up to test cricket. Don't point the finger at there being far more away support when England come. This was a this mm. was generated from local local there wasn't as much local support as there was last year. And that's fine. I mean again I'm not I'm not trying to persecute the Perth people here saying, why did you not come to your new test match? There's lots of reasons for that. But I say all of this really to uh, to say that uh, we we did hear from the Wacker last year that mm. the test matches that weren't getting more than fifteen thousand people through the gate um, were going to be played at the Wacker. I, I wonder whether that will actually happen now because I don't imagine New Zealand or Pakistan, the two touring sides next year, whoever Oof. comes here, they're not going to be getting fifteen thousand a day here. Last time New Zealand played at Perth, it was more like twelve or thirteen thousand a day, if memory serves me correctly. Oh, so for, for for only a couple of the days. That's I right. Mean, Mitch, it was Mitchell Johnson's last match. He was retiring, and there were about fifteen hundred people there on the last to see him retire from Test Cricket. It was sad. So I wonder whether that'll necessitate some improvement being done to the Wacker or whether they'll suck it up and play in this stadium, which will be empty, which will be a terrible look. That's, that's an interesting debate, especially if it ends up being a day-night Test match, which, I mean, you know, this was I, another narrative running through the week. They, they allegedly asked for the Boxing Day Test. That was um, countered by Chris Matthews, but... Um, yeah, that, that was just a bit of a sort of thought bubble, wasn't it? That somehow it may have been. somehow hit the hit the papers. Yeah, but a day night test isn't a day night test is no. something they really want at this ground next year. And and putting to one side the logistical concerns, I'm not sure how well it will go having a you know a, a stadium that's a quarter full in a day night test. They may, I mean, you know, it, it's it's vexed. I think we'll, we'll put you know to to answer both of those things. I, I think okay, you can you can look at the crowds and say um, you know they, they should have played this at the Wacker. Had they played it at the Wacker, eighty thousand would have become 45,000 or 35,000 people just wouldn't go because it's a horrible ground to watch cricket at it's it's really hard because you can't get in the shade and the facilities are terrible so more people will come here even if it looks like less people are here um, you know the optics might not be good but the reality for the people who do show up is it's a much better experience yeah there's no doubt that the consumer experience here was wonderful I also sort of share concerns of those like Jim Maxwell that say it does feel like a football stadium not a cr- cricket ground which they have across the road whether and this is Ed Cowan's argument when we've been to Wellington before to cover tests in one day as we've been there a few times now that at Wellington they play their test cricket at the basin Mm. And their white ball cricket at the cake tin, and they do that specifically because they don't want to. Um, yep. They don't want to move away from what's been a traditional cricket ground. I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I, I don't want to sit here I and would... bag this ground because for what it is, because we know it's a phenomenal, brand new, wonderful stadium with great consumer experience. But there might be an argument for a lower attended test next year if they can do the necessary work about shade, Jeff, which you've talked about, yep. and, and other improvements it, like the toilets. Just, yeah, it's it's getting skin cancer within a day, and it's you know standing ankle deep in human sewage because because the toilets don't work and they back up and overflow and there's nowhere to get a drink or a yeah. or a piece of food and all the rest. There's of it. lots so of things, no question. It's, it's no not. Question. It, it's something you know. The Wacker need, would need serious work in order to become usable as a ground. And if it were, I'd, I'd love it to have cricket, but mm. it's not. And and that's why you know I've, I've been pretty outspoken um, against it. And I think that they, they're better off having cricket here so that it will encourage more people to come because you can bring your kids and find a seat in the shade and and get something to eat and drink and all the rest of it. But um, but in terms of running a day-night test here, I guess, you know, it's warm in the evenings and it might be a way to draw more people down. But it, if it's ending at one in the morning on the east coast of Australia, it's mm-hmm. it's not really conducive to um, to those TV ratings that, that everybody wants so much. 
And just last thing, Jeff, before we move on to our guests about next year, New Zealand should get four tests, shouldn't they? I mean, if Pakistan and New Zealand are out here next year and Pakistan are probably get two, you'd expect, um, surely New Zealand, with their rise in, in 2018, um, deserve the opportunity to play against Australia four times in, in a proper full series. And, and surely now that we have this new stadium, a, a lust for day-night cricket, we'll see what Canberra do. I'm sure Hobart will fancy a test after not having one since 2016. There, there must be a way to, to ensure that the, that the Black Caps get what they deserve after being so magnificent in 2018. Well, it just comes down to cash again, doesn't it? Are, are they going to make money hosting New Zealand or, or you know, will CA lose money on those test matches? It doesn't mean we shouldn't argue for it. It does not mean we shouldn't. And they have been tremendous this year, uh, New Zealand. They get to play so little test cricket you know the fact that uh, we just did the the guardian sort of team of the year votes and i think you mm. and i both had kane williamson in, the, in there at first drop who's played what six test matches this yeah. year but but is you know such high quality when it happens that um th- that he forces his way in anyway so it, it would be great to see a proper full-length series the end of a memorable history making week at perth stadium this is the final word with adam collins and jeff Lennon. Jeff, the final word, of course, is brought to you today by our dear friends at Kookaburra. If it's not Kookaburra, it's not cricket. Uh, Every week during the summer, you can win Kookaburra prizes, bats, pads, gloves, thigh pads. Every week, something is on offer. Just head to kookaburra.biz and sign up to Team Kookaburra. That's kookaburra.biz. Biz and how many times have I said kookaburra in a sentence? At least twelve. Have a have a crack at doing more, twelve more, Jeff. More than you've probably ever said it before. Biz is spelt B I Z. It's a cool way to say business. It's what all the uh, the kids are doing these days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the big question is, I've got to go down there and, and pick out a bat at some point. Oh, I'm torn. Do, do I get the blaze, which is what? Maxie uses and Rachel Haynes, the great number six slogger in the God, she's turned herself into such a ferocious hero of the just, ball in the middle order, or I'm kind of torn. I, I sort of I think I'm going to go with the ghost because Nathan Lyon uses the ghost and and just the, the goat with the ghost, um, <laughs> and the way that he's transformed himself into a into a, a sort of novelty yet highly effective lower order batsman. The last year or so has been a joy to behold. And Marcus Harris and the Cole Bolton two Australian openers both use the ghost as well. There's the surge. If you use the surge, it's Peter Hanscom's piece of wood, Mitchell Stark and Sophie Molyneux, or the Kahuna. Alisa Healy, who, of course, is the informed player in the world at the moment. The captain, Tim Payne, who has a long and rich history with Kookaburra. And Usman Khawaja. Well, who wouldn't want to have Usman Khawaja's back? The kahuna. The big kahuna. Big kahuna burger. Get a, it's got a slice of pineapple right in the middle of the blade. Either way, get along to kookaburra.biz and sign up to Team Kookaburra with a chance to win your bats, your pads, your gloves and your thigh pad. And remember, if it isn't cooker, it isn't cricket. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon at Perth Stadium. Uh, at lunch today, Jeff, when we were sitting at the table, I had, I had two young men sitting next to me talking about regression analysis, which must mean that we've got the Crickviz whiz kids in the room. We've got Ben Jones and Freddie Wilde, uh, who are going to explain to us what it is that they do, how they crunch the numbers, how they make it all work. Um, their youth is their unique selling point. I remember being their age um, some decades ago, uh, and now they seem to have these highfalutin job titles at this joint called Crickviz. Now, I've had the great pleasure of running into them in and out of the Oval uh, in at the Oval or rather in, in London, but, um, but Ben, uh, if you can, uh, to initially get us going, explain what it is that Crickviz do. Try, try and give us a snapshot overview on what your job is and what value you're adding to the, to the, to the discourse of the cricket that we watch. God, that's, that's quite an introduction. Um, well, Crickviz is a cricket analytics company um, that looks to go beyond traditional cricketing measures um, and statistics and record and analyze new data which hopefully reveals things that we've either always thought about the game and but not been able to prove or disprove things that we've always thought about the game um like smash a bit of received wisdom um and we want to do that in all the different departments we possibly can we want to do it for for teams for broadcasters for punters on the street for people like you guys who just prod us in the press box and say what's happening out there <laughs> um we want to be able to just help everyone in the game uh, understand the game better and then if I can bring Freddie in, I mean, in my time covering cricket, people have been saying for a long time cricket stats are pretty antiquated. They, you know, they, they don't actually go into much depth, but no one really did anything about it. And it seems like you guys have, have taken that challenge to actually, you know, uh, take some action. Yeah, I think it's sort of um, using the numbers to 
to tell the story of what's happening and why it's happening, whereas averages and records have sort of flown around a lot in, in cricket. Um, but it's more, um, you know, quirky stats. And, you know, this is the largest sixth wicket partnership by India on a Tuesday. Mm. And, you know, rather than <laughs> stats that are actually going to explain, as Ben says, sort of what's going on out there, is the ball moving around? Why, why have India, you know, the, the, this pitch is a, is a green pitch and it's seeming, but India aren't taking any wickets. What's going on? And our job, I suppose, and the role of cricket is to try and tell that story. How quickly do it develop? So you use the information received from Opta, as I understand it, so all the ball tracking and Hawkeye technologies at your disposal, but how quickly has the database been developed to enable you to crunch the numbers you are you do at the moment? Uh, yeah, well, we, we were founded originally in 2015. Um, I started as one of the sort of original um, guys, I guess, working on... We have an app, um, and initially we had a, a number of models, um, the company was co-founded by Nathan Lehman, who works with the England team, and he built models, um, a win probability model, one that forecasted the rest of the match, and one that sort of evaluated the impact of batting, bowling, and fielding on the game. So at the, at the start, we just had that. Um, but over the last couple of years, we've developed, and as you said, we received data from Opta, from Hawkeye, um, and it all gets ingested in live, and it's it sort of spat out, if you like, at, at the front end, where mm. myself, Ben, and Patrick as well, um, we, we sit down and we analyse it, um, and that's taken and yeah, a couple of years really and we've sort of had the database in, in its current form I suppose which is um, pretty advanced for the last year. It, it seems like there are so many layers of things to unpack in cricket stats because you, you can look at you know things that mean something on the surface don't actually end up meaning anything when you dig into them you know you say oh someone averages 70 in the second innings and 30 in the first innings but but a second innings might be third innings declaration batting when you're 500 in front already and, and you go out and whack 60 that means nothing or it might be in a fourth innings when 60 runs is absolutely vital and is the difference between winning a, a close chase and, and losing a close chase. Like, How much digging in and you know, how much separation does there need to be? Well, generally, as a, as a broad rule, the more granular you go, like the closer into the data you go, the more you filter it and the more you kind of get rid of the noise, you get close to the truth, generally. So at the moment, we've got someone like Rishabh Pant batting today didn't he sadly only got about 130 away from getting India across the line um, but he has a test average of like a tick under 40 and that doesn't really tell us a lot, a lot about him but he has an extremely good average with his attacking shots so that's we've, we've kind of divided all of his game up into these different kinds of batting strokes and we're like okay well he's very good at this he's very good at attacking he's not very good at defending his defence his like balls per dismissal as a, def- as a batsman is pretty low so when people criticise him for being too attacking, it's suddenly very useful because you can say, well, no, that's what he's good at. Let him do that. Don't force him to just sit there blocking and leaving because he isn't good at that. The reason he's got to the level he is is because he's such a good aggressive batsman. And that's what I mean in terms of the granular data. You get closer to it and you realise, OK, well, it's not just he's good or bad. It's like, this is what he's good at. This is what he's bad at. And that's useful for everyone. Is that going to help teams manage their players better as well as just sort of helping reporting and analysis in a media sense? I think it can only help teams analyse and perform better because if you know the strengths and weaknesses of your players, which is what coaches are trying to do intuitively every day, like if, if uh, Shastri and Kohli are stood in the nets trying to work out what Pam's good at, I mean, he's not a great example because you can tell he's good at attacking and, and defending, etc. But if you've got someone who's on the cusp, you can actually look at the data rather than having to watch hours and hours and hours of someone batting go traipsing around India to go to the Ranji Trophy it's much easier to just look at the data and go okay this is the kind of player we've got this is who we're dealing with that's useful for, for coaches and captains when selecting teams and whatever uh, Freddie a film came out about eight years ago Moneyball which explained the Oakland A's uh, trip to I think the playoffs in the in Major League Baseball and it had a huge influence on the way that people understood baseball stats and, and really informed recruitment policy going forward. Uh, our colleague Jared Kimber, who's very into this, I know you work very closely with Jared as well, he, he's been almost, uh, he's, he's revolutionised the way he writes about the game around data having um, invested deeply in, in that side of it. Is that what we're talking about here? Is it about trying to, when you boil it all back, trying to find a way to pick teams, especially in domestic T20 comps for instance, which data is so important with these 120 discrete isolated um, contests that they talk about now, you guys talk about now. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that kind of what it all boils down to? You can almost 
just moneyball yourself a, a, a T20 winning side, and that can be a, re- you know, a repeatable process, competition on competition. Yeah, I mean, I think people will often refer back to moneyball because you know it, it became so famous, both the book and the film. Um, and you're right, this what is happening in cricket? Not only Crickviz, there are other companies that do it, um, and it's be- become more and more popular in the last probably five years, and it's definitely sort of been accelerated by T20 um, is is looking at the game from a numerical perspective and, and gaining an advantage um, from that and that's what the, you know, in Moneyball the Oakland A's did um, and it's what teams are doing increasingly often um, and it's not just T20 but it's it's all at all levels of cricket um, I mentioned Nathan Lehman um, who, who works with us mm. um, he was one of the first um, you know I think probably the most high-profile analyst have, have worked in cricket, um, and, and he's been doing it with the England team for, for quite a few years now, since 2007, I think. Yeah, it might be worth talking about Nathan a bit here, because so you, it, despite the fact that he, well, in, in addition to working with with Crickviz and being one of your founders, he, he's well one of the most renowned analysts in the game. He's written a novel about cricket this year. He's such an accomplished writer too. He kind of touches a lot of bases, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, well, and he, and he sort of um, helped, I guess, raise the profile of analytics in cricket, and I think. Um, around you know, the, the England team under Flower, um, sort of 2008 to 12, when they became world number one in the world, mm. that era was defined by Flower's sort of um, control, if you like, and meticulous planning, and, and Lehman was central to that. Um, and and I think that uh, more recently he sort of um, more of a public profile, I guess. Um, mm. he, as you said, he's written a book and he's, he's he's gone on the radio and stuff talking about that, and that's it's um, only helping raise the profile of analytics generally. It's still kind of in its infancy, though, isn't it? Like, there's, it seems so much around cricket is is received wisdom, and you know, this is the way we've always done things. Therefore, it must be right. It's it's really hard to talk about what we do without sounding like we want to just prove everybody wrong. Mm. You know, we, we don't just want to come in and go, um, actually, um, <laughs> we, we we want to we want to work with people and kind of have that bit of give and take of like because we we I mean I've I've played cricket with Fred a few times now he's quite good I'm appalling we only know so much about cricket from what you can actually gain practically other people in the game know a huge amount of that and actually it's the two things working together but cricket's full of narratives about people wanting to prove people wrong. That's the only story anyone likes. They say, oh, Mitchell Stark took wickets in Perth and people bagged him after Adelaide. Did you want to prove him wrong? Do you feel like you've, you've knocked back the knockers? So surely you should embrace this narrative. We're out to prove him all wrong. I mean, maybe if we were trying to be a bit more bullish, but that's mm. not really that's not really. You're too polite for that, aren't you? <laughs> sort of this genteel English thing. You've, you've dropped into an interesting point of all this, though, and, and Fred is a good player. We, we had the great fortune of playing the first ever game of the 100 at Lords a few months ago, and Fred went very nicely indeed. But... Uh, you two aren't statos. I mean, uh, Ben, you, you studied uh, philosophy and English at, uh, at university. Just English, but... I Just mean, English. D- very philosophically. Uh, at, an, at an Oxbridge university, no less. And, and Freddie, you studied politics over in Cardiff. So you're cricket lovers who, who are deeply versed in the stories of the game, but not from a statistical bent, which, which in many respects almost validates the idea of the fact that it's not about numbers taking over the game, it's about the game interpreting numbers better. Is that how you see your role, Freddie? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's important that there are some guys behind the scenes at Crickviz who are number driven. It's not like just me and Ben who are who are you know, um, as as you said, an English student and a politics student. I'm just going to write um, a poem and then work out the average swing uh, <laughs> achieved in this inning, and then exactly. use it to get elected. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So we've we've got some 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 nerdy number crunches behind the scenes, um, and then I guess Ben and I are. Probably equally nerdy, uh, but not so not so number crunchy at, at the front, um, looking at the numbers and analysing them. Um, and yeah, and it's about telling you know it's about picking out um, the stories and working out what is going on in a way that's not you know completely led by the numbers, but um, looking at them and balancing that with with what you see. And a lot of late nights as well for both of you because the the game is. M- played more often than not international cricket's played in the southern hemisphere and of course you're based in london uh, that that shows a fair degree of commitment to the cause it, it must almost feel like a vocation with you two blokes even though you're quite young that you're already really living and breathing this stuff day to day yeah i mean it, it obviously cricket's the, the defining thing of cricket is just that it's always on there's always some cricket happening somewhere that's what my flatway, flatmate always says it's just like if he walks in the telly's on there's cricket on <laughs> and it's and it is a bit of that we I was so kind of passionate about it and was so so kind of engaged with what we're doing that actually it is a bit of a, a vocation almost like a lifestyle because you're so you're so constantly on it I mean me and Fred always joke about this now that and, and Patrick as well that if we're watching a game 
just for pleasure you'll start thinking about something you'll, you'll, right. look, you'll watch a shot and you'll think oh, okay well he's pr- that's pretty solid off the back foot there I'm gonna look. what is Rohani like and then all of a sudden you've got your laptop open you're going away you're typing, and, and you're, you're trying not to do you're trying not to you're kind of fighting yeah. it but actually suddenly you're seeing the game through a different lens and oh, you can't just flick that switch off on and off I was noticing this we were calling the test matches in Dubai and we'd knock off at the end of the day and sort of go somewhere and sit on the couch and there'd be you know the Afghanistan Premier League yeah. was it being played <laughs> at that time the, the, the leopards from somewhere and is it, it was it was almost too much. Is there a point where you're like, maybe we don't need this much cricket? <laughs> um, I wouldn't ever say that. Uh, <laughs> I'm on the record on that. There's never too much. And, and you wouldn't be saying it at the moment with such a demand on your time from broadcasters, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you blokes today is because you, you don't just, especially you at the moment, Fred, you're, you're working with Fox Sports. It could have easily been Channel 7 because uh, you've worked with Channel 9 before. Um, Sky Sports in the UK. Star, I think I'm right in saying uh, you've worked with ICC. India? So, uh, ICC. Global Sorry, events, right. So global events. So so across the world now, it is so a lot of the, the graphics we see on television on Fox Sports, whether it's the Captain's Cube or Winviz, which is probably the most famous product you guys produce, which we'll go into in a moment as well, because I think that's one of the least understood uh, parts of cricket analytics. But the Captain's Cube, which in the last Test match was six rows by four. Yeah, me and Jeff have had. We've already had words about that. But, but, but more to the point, I, I just want to tap into. The it's idea a rectangle. That, there's no way. It could, there's no <laughs> conceivable way it could be part of a cube. It just needs to Don't be four by four. That's all. I'm just saying, four by four would be fine. Okay. One face of a cube. I know it's two dimensions, but at least it could be a cube. That's the pet in you. This is just my feedback. So, so, so talk me through, Freddie. What's going on in that television commentary box? I mean, in addition to just them crunching numbers with you, but the sort of products that are so highly valued now that they can add to their and colour in their own broadcasts. Yeah, well, um, yeah, we, we work, as, as you said, around the world with a number of broadcasters, and it's about, um, similar to what Ben said at the top, it's about sort of enhancing the story. Um, and Hawkeye came into broadcasting sort of probably about 15, 16 years ago now, turn of the century, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and now is you know it's a household name, um, and you'll always see pitch maps and beehives as offering extra analysis, basically. And I think the idea with CrickViz is, you know, we're, we're coming in and want to enhance the broadcast in a similar way with our numbers um, and our graphics. Um, and it might be that we spot something and, and we'll go up to a commentator and say, you know, how about this? You know, this, this, this is something that, that, you know, Rahul struggles against the Inducker. Um, do you want to do a piece on it? Or it might be that they have a theory and they say, oh, you know, what about, you know, is Rahane stronger off the back foot? And we'll say, well, yeah, he is. And you'll type up a graphic and send it off. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, it's being put to air in a third man package with Michael Atherton, for example. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's about, um, yeah, as I said, enhancing the story. And, and who's receptive to it? Take us behind the lines a bit here because we're a podcast after all so we do need to get a bit of your who, who are the one who are the commentators who we know and love or, or, or maybe not love so much who, who have embraced your work and perhaps some who are a bit resistant to change um, well I think with Sky the guys that are most receptive probably the guys you think would be so that's Ian Ward um, Mike yep. Afton and Nasser Hussain sort of stand out um, Rob Key is someone as well who I've found mm, is, is, he's awesome. is, is really engaged mm. um, and I think to be honest you, you often will get you'll find sometimes you'll, you'll always get someone engaged if you can find something that backs up their point <laughs> um, which is great and then also if you have anything so if you can get a graphic for say Ian Chappell that proves that, that Ian Botham's a prick <laughs> yeah see the, the hotspot in the prick area there's a big red throbbing area on big the ground spike right in the prick zone it's, tr- it's trying to prove something for Warney that shows that when, it's, when it seems it swings or when it seems it spins and all that kind of stuff oh, he well, must any, anything on leg spin well, if, anything if, on leg spin for Warney and, you, and you'll, you'll be you'll well, let's, let's use him as an example because I've noticed you know in the political sphere as well there's a lot of um, trouble with sort of trying to refute myth I was listening to Shane Warne during the, the T20s that were being played in, in Australia a few weeks ago and he was banging on and on about the bowlers weren't bowling Yorkers. Why didn't they bowl Yorkers at the death? Because because you know they were the hardest to score off. And I can remember reading some analysis saying a, a Yorker's a bad option because your margin for error is much lower in a T20 game. You're more you on average go for more runs from trying to bowl Yorkers than you would from bowling length balls with your field out. For instance, just one example. So when you're trying to convince someone who's got a very entrenched point of view um, does it make any difference if you've got all the data in the world? There, you know, with some players and some points of view um, you, you, it's not worth trying if you like, like you know, mm. we're there to try and help and try and improve the broadcast um, and, and you know, there is no right and wrong um, so if someone has a view and if our mm. data does disagree with it um, it's, it's probably not worth us um, you know, sort of clashing with that point of view too much you know the, the, some bowlers 
could bowl more Yorkers and maybe don't. Some bowlers, it depends who you know which bowler you're talking about. You're, you're right, actually. What what you said about Yorkers is true. A lot of the margin for error is very small. Um, but if you're Boovy, for example, and you can nail your Yorker. Um, then maybe you should be bowling them more often than you do. So it's sort of, you know, th- th- there's more nuance to it as well. I think the sort of idea that there's a right and wrong answer complicates it. And I think that's partly, that really sums, it, sums up the idea that like, it's an interaction between two different ideas. It's not just us going like, look, you're, you've bowled seven Yorkers and they've never gone for any runs, so why don't you bowl 100% Yorkers? Because that's not of any value to anyone. But actually saying like, okay, well you bowled them, when you've bowled them slightly more, you've tended to do well in certain innings. And so it's trying to give a broader picture. There's no point looking at telling Kevin Peterson that, you know, why, why don't you play the cut? You've played 10 and they've, you've never got out to it. You're like, well, that's your game. Let the player do that. It's just trying to offer the information and make it available and then they can make a more informed decision. In terms of where this goes uh, into the future, the IPL auction is one of the stories of the week for, for, for good reason. Um, to what extent uh, are IPL franchises, if we consider that the elite T20 comp of the world, and I, I assume that is what is broadly considered to be at this point, to what extent are they using uh, analytics that, at the level you are versus using intuition? Because I know there's an intersection and you know knowing cricket isn't just about the numbers and we've already dealt with that already in this conversation. But um, ha- ha- to what what degree do you think they're, they're getting squeezing the sponge as much as they can when they're making their picks at the auction table? I think they could do it more, and I would say that. <laughs> involved in, in this, but yeah, give us a call, guys. I think um, it, I mean it varies team to team, and I, you know, I can't, you know, I'm not privy to, to how every team works, and how, but, but it's, it's different in different setups. Um, but I find consistently, not just in IPL teams, um, but around the world. Uh, I'm often taken aback by how little analysis there is. So I think there is scope Remarkable. for more, essentially. So in the future, can you imagine a world where you two blokes, Ben, start with you, like where you go and work for a club or work for a franchise or indeed where Crickviz, you know, it wouldn't be outside the realm's possibility that you could you could be a franchise, really, is it? That you could, I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, probably going, I'm probably taking that a degree too far at this stage. But, I mean, having the access to the material you have around the world Surely that there's a logical extension of what you do is where you work inside a club. Well, just to just to leap back slightly, there is there has been many a, a kind of an afternoon wild away at the Oval in the office in the Critvis office where we've been trying to come up with our franchise name. Um, <laughs> so I think the best so far is the Critvis calculators. Just we'll, yeah, it'd be like a, a little a little calculator explode an explosion on top of it with our logo. We've we've thought it through. So. And if you turn it upside down, it spells boobs. Oh. <laughs> yeah, boobless. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, a former guest and friend of the show, Daniel Norcross, went um, through and worked out the highest number you could have turning into a player's name, turning the calculator upside down, um, and in in bringing an eleven together with Andy Zaltzman on the BBC podcast the other week. Time well spent, I felt. Yeah, as much as, much as I love Norcross, I think it's good to uh, to clarify those really aren't our kind of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think we. I mean, we we have we have worked with um, professional teams in the past, um, and we will in the future, hopefully. Um, and we've always found it an interesting experience. Um, as Fred says, it's you're often butting up against less than you think in terms of people like there being pre-existing systems there and thinking that you're going to walk in and it's ultra professional. It's often slightly less than you'd think. And yeah, we would we would love to be more involved across the board. Would you just Alfred sort of go in and say, uh, "We've noticed you're winning 32 percent of games. Why don't you try to win a higher percentage?" <laughs> That's actually what we start all our meetings with. We, 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 yeah, we start there and we're like, well, "There's uh, there's 68 percent room here, so we can yeah, we could, we reckon we can get you up to 99 like Dettol. We can win you win 99.9 percent of games." Well, it's been great to chat to you, Blake. We really enjoy working with you. Uh, throughout the 365 days of the cricket calendar it feels like we're working you're working as well if i could buy shares in you two blokes i'd do exactly that because my theory is that you two are going to be very wealthy young men sooner rather than later so when you do become rich don't forget us here on the final word thanks so much to ben jones and freddie wild from crickviz for their excellent company over the last half an hour or so we neglected to mention jeff in the show that they also gave us some wonderful support when we were in the uae Commentating Australia and Pakistan, yeah. uh, they were they were immense. I mean, we, we, we had, had we, a commercial arrangement with them, strictly speaking. But but, but we had a text message group set up, <laughs> and we were just like, okay, what's going on with this? And they, they were our offshore statos who were uh, bringing us all the info. So yeah, good good to get an insight into how they work. And thanks to everyone for being with us this week. Oh, what a test match! We, we've had a mm. brilliant time. Uh, we've got to go forward to Melbourne, and it's and it's poised. We have a live Boxing Day test. It's alive. We we alive. talk. So, we always get. 
get stuck into scheduling, and, and rightly so. But isn't this just validation? Yeah, you know, that, that, that we can get there sometimes, and, and and they've done so on this occasion. So we're thrilled to be heading to Melbourne with a live test. Of course, thanks again to our pals at Cookerborough for sponsoring the show today. If it ain't Cooker, it ain't cricket. Get along to Cookerborough.biz, B-I-Z, Cookerborough.biz to sign up there and. Win yourself some kit. And before uh, Boxing Day, we've got the special Christmas episode coming up. The final word, Christmas present for you, because we love you so much. And with that Christmas present we have for you, it's going to be Harsha Bogle, the voice of cricket in India, uh, a man that you and I, Jeff, have both worked with quite a lot over the last few years. He's uh, coming along to give us an hour of his time and tell us everything that he thinks about cricket, how he got into broadcasting, how this caper all works. He And he's not shy about playing his shots when you put the microphone on and ask, ask him if few questions so that should be a lot of fun yeah a great interview with him we, we've already recorded it and got it i was in trying the can, to, i was so, trying to so play around with it then and say that maybe we hadn't recorded it i oh. mean you've I, I was trying to do with my tents there imply okay. that we're about to do it but you right. know well i, I just think we should let people know it's good i think we should let people know it's a, it's a ripping conversation <laughs> it is because you know we've got into the interview and got in depth about him and his life and um a whole lot of things you know behind the scenes rather than just like oh calling the ipl that must be fun um so yeah it's, it's a it's a great chat and Look out for that on Christmas Eve. I think. We'll yeah, I reckon we'll drop that on Christmas Eve. So keep an eye on that. And as always, Jeff, as we if we've been urging people to do, um, there's a chance to to rate the show on mm-hmm. iTunes, to review the show on iTunes. We'd be really grateful if, if you could do that. Um, and also, it also helps us make the show financially viable. And and that's also being supported by um, Bad Producer Productions and Jay Mueller who's come on board with us and, and working with us this season. So everything's heading in the right direction, but those reviews and ratings do an awful lot to help get the show up the charts. And keep an eye on our, our various Twitter feeds and so on. We're looking at doing a couple of live podcasts in January, so if we get those together, we'll uh, let you know more. If they do get off the ground, I assure you, we'll be, we'll be pounding you for, for, uh, for your attendance. So, so keep an eye on that, and, and if there is more to say, we will say it as soon as possible. Yeah, those possible dates might be January 2nd in Sydney and I think it's the 16th in Melbourne, but um, we'll, we'll see how organised yeah, we get and let you know. We're a little ways away from that at the moment, but fingers crossed we have some more news this side of Christmas. And last but not least, thanks again for everyone for tuning in and, and supporting the final word and, and uh, lending us your ears for the last hour or so. It's been a lot of fun as always. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, we leave the West Coast back to the East fulfilled. It's been an enjoyable week of cricket. This has been the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Can't wait to do it all again next week. I had to go about it, write it out.